0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this conversation streaming fiction with Charles Yu and Jess Walter. I am the moderator for tonight here for this event with uh, Scribd and the Commonwealth Club. I am uh, an editor uh, and a content consultant for Scribd, and I hope uh, everybody's settling in, getting ready. I have some stuff I got to read. Uh, As the club continues to host virtual events, they are grateful for the continued support of their members and donors, and we're sure happy for them and you all to be here tonight. They'd like uh, you to consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. Again, that's 415-329-4231. They'd also like to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share videos like this one with your family and friends as I'm going to be doing later in spades. During our program, we'll have time for your questions, so please submit those in the chat box, which you should see on your Zoom interface. And I also need to tell you a little bit about Scribd, also sponsoring, as I said, this event. It is a reading subscription platform that provides access to eBooks, audiobooks, magazines, podcasts, and more. It's really extraordinary all that it aggregates, an incredible resource and source of entertainment. It recently launched an original content arm known as Scribd Originals. That's the place for which I'm working, and that these great writers have published their stories. And it features exclusive and compelling ebook and audiobook stories, which you can u- usually read in just a few hours or listen to by authors like the two you'll hear in conversation tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about Jess Walter and Charles Yu before we Get in, let me read their bios to you. I will say I've had the, the pleasure of working with them both over the years. They're not just extraordinary writers, but really extraordinary people. It's not always easy to edit creative types or creatives. <laughs> <laughs> and these two make it, make it a joy and a privilege. I'll start telling you a little bit about Charlie, Charles Yu. He's the author of several books, including How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe and the Scribd Original Story, the only living girl on earth. He is the 2020 National Book Award winner for his most recent novel, Interior Chinatown. Uh, Charles has been nominated for two Writers Guild of America awards for his work on the HBO series, Westworld, and has written for other TV shows on FX and AMC. Jess Walter is the best-selling author of Beautiful Ruins and the scribed original story, Town and Country. He was a finalist for the 2006 National Book Award for The Zero and the winner of the 2005 Edgar Allan Poe Award for Citizen Vince. His most recent novel out this past fall is The Cold Millions. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you for coming, you guys. Such a pleasure. I I wanted to introduce these two writers for a long time, so this feels like a writerly dating game to me, although, you know, not without all the other <laughs> parts. But. Um, I just think they they have um, they have an unbelievable facility with humor, with using humor to get to really poignant things, uh, um, uh, visionary things about being human, what it means to survive uh, this world, this life. Um, I I also think they do extraordinary things with structure and form. Their sentences are gorgeous, um, deceptively simple. Um, not so simple, but they, they choose their words with great care. Um, since we're here to talk about their Scribd stories, um, we thought, all three of us, that it might be useful for those of you who have not read the stories, that each of them read a few paragraphs from each story, give you a sense of the subject, the style, what they're, what they're after. So, um, I don't know, Charlie, would, would you like to go first?
2: I would. I would All right. like to go first. Um, I, I want to uh, first thank uh, the Commonwealth Club and you, Amy and Jess, and everyone who's uh, tuned in tonight. Um, I'm so excited to be here, and uh, and you know, um, I'm also uh, slightly vamping because I have to pull up my story. You think that I would have it ready? Uh, it's it's incredibly embarrassing that I did not have it. Ready, it's up now. But I did mean all those things I just said. Um, I will read from the beginning, I think, just just a bit here.
1: <clears throat>
2: this is The Only Living Girl on Earth. One, Jane. On Mondays, her mom always calls her from the moon. Did you get to work okay? No. No? Sorry to say this. I'm dead. That's nice, Jane. That's a nice reaction to your mother caring about you. Like really dead, super dead, burned up on re-entry to Earth. It was gruesome. Someday you're going to feel bad about this conversation. I already feel pretty bad about it. I'm serious. You'll understand when you have a kid of your own. You realize I'd have to actually meet a guy in order for that to happen. It's a long way from our little satellite. All I do is worry about you, and I have to deal with this, Mom, I'm okay. Are you? I'm fine, just fine. Very convincing, Jane says. Then it's quiet on the line. Jane listens to the crackle of white noise, cosmic background radiation, a faint reminder of the Big Bang, a single event 13.7 billion years ago working itself out. From Monday to Friday, Jane lives here, 240,000 miles from her mom. It's a weird distance, not cosmic, not even galactic. Just far enough, the size of the local situation. Radius of their private little system. Today marks the middle of the off-season. Three months since the last of the tourists packed up and shuffled off to various subdivisions on Europa. It'll be another couple months before the cycle begins again. Early birds trickling in. Until then, weeks of solitude, broken up by... Occasional stragglers, bargain hunters, retirees on cut-rate packages looking for a hot meal in a clean restroom. Come to earth, the looping promo video says. Jane wishes she could turn it off, but the remote's broken. She stretches, sips coffee, watches it for the 10,000th time. I think I'll stop there.
1: Wonderful. Thanks. Jess, would you like to go?
0: Yeah, I love that uh inventive story of charlie's um Thanks. my story Thanks. is called town and country and it is um i'll tell you a little bit about it and then actually read from sort of the middle uh it is a uh a story about a young man named jay a middle-aged man named jay who uh, ends up having to take care of his uh, father who has dementia but he and his father are very much uh, different people he, jay is a uh, um uh a white-collar worker, and uh, and his dad is an old blue-collar guy who's fallen back into drinking and promiscuity in his old age. So um, he's trying to find a place to put this uh, very rowdy dad of his. Uh, and they get a tip about a place called the Town and Country. It took me a week to find the Town and Country Senior Inn, this was partly because it was nearly 400 miles away, and partly because, as the director said repeatedly over the phone, it was not technically a licensed elder care facility. Wait, which part are you technically not, I asked? An elder care facility or licensed? You really have to come see for yourself, he said. And when I described my fa- father, he said, oh, you're definitely going to want to come. So on a Saturday, I drove. I threw dad in the car, and we drove seven hours north on twisty highway 95 straight up the spine of Idaho. The town and country as it turned out was an actual motor inn built in the 1950s on an unincorporated stretch near a stain of a town called State Line. The building had been updated when it was turned into this senior residential hotel but it was basically the same sprawling seedy one-story motel it had always been. There was a carport fronting a lobby, and behind that, a chop house lounge with no windows, a small stage, and smoke-stained carpeting halfway up the walls. The staff at the town and country were dressed not like orderlies or nurses, but like employees of a 1960s hotel. Women in waitress dresses, men in high-collared blue jackets and gendarme hats. The grounds, if you could call a gravel parking lot grounds, were dotted with old people wandering around behind tall fences, being steered back to their rooms by men dressed as bellmen and porters. The director of the town and country was named Skip. He was three shades of gray stacked one on top of the other, and he looked like he was a week from checking into the hotel himself. He had started this place for his own parents, who had run a bar and a brothel in one of those old mining towns in Idaho. They really weren't cut out for the kind of place where Grammy does art projects, he said. (laughs) The town and country had a simple ethos. The elderly folks were not decrepit residents, but hotel guests checked into one of the 40 guest rooms. A few of those rooms were reserved for couples, but most of the guests were singles, divorced widows or widowers. They could do whatever they wanted in their rooms, drink, smoke, screw, watch TV, but in a nod to nostalgia, the TVs only had four channels and the phones were rotary dial. One necessary concession had been to put in a state-of-the-art sprinkler system and non-flammable bedding. We do tend to get a few snoozing smokers, Skip said. A continental breakfast was served each morning in the hotel lobby from 5 a.m. to noon, although if the guests became sick or non-ambulatory, the food could be delivered to them for an extra room service fee. Anything extra at the town and country would be tacked onto the bill, just like at a hotel. Laundry, meds, a haircut, all could be arranged for a fee. There was no group therapy, no activity room, no sing-along, no craft projects. There were only two things on the calendar every day. Continental breakfast and, beginning at 3.30, dinner and happy hour. This is what we're proudest of, Skip said. And with a flourish, he produced a thick menu and handed it to my dad. The food was straight out of my childhood. Roast and potatoes, pork chops and applesauce, French dip, Monte Cristo, and the prices. You could have a London broil and a baked potato for $4. You could have goulash or spaghetti and meatballs for 2 dollars Skip saw my smile. Yeah, the prices make them really happy. The real price, the price you'll pay and get on your monthly bill, is approximately four times that. The bar menu was just as amazing. A screwdriver for $2, a Tom Collins for two fifty, beers <coughs> for $0.75. Cents. I looked over. My dad was staring at the menu like it was a time travel portal. My dad has been having this other issue, I said, his libido. Skip nodded and then chose his words carefully. The dominant model for elder care focuses, of course, on longevity and health. But this can be at the cost of what I would call personal choice. At the town and country, we want to preserve personal choice, which means he smiled and I saw a black eye tooth. We go through a lot of penicillin.
1: Uh, great. Thank you both. Um, And I think think that was a good way to start, just to give everyone a sense of what these stories are about and how they are alike and different from. Um, your other works. I should also add, guys, there are going to be questions. There's going to be Q&A at the end, so um, you, you can um, uh, enter your questions in, and um, at the end, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go through as many of them as we possibly can. Um, so, Jess, you described a bit about your story. Uh, Charlie, did you want to elaborate a little bit more about yours in terms of, of what it does and, and, and what you hope to, to do with it?
2: Uh, no, I do not. <laughs> uh, people should go to Scribd and read the story. Uh, no, I forgot to do that. And when when Jess did it, oh yeah, um, uh, it's so Jane is um, the only living girl on Earth, and she, you know, Earth now is basically uh, a tourist trap. You know, it's the it's it's been reduced to uh, sort of a place that inter intergalactic travelers sort of get gas and maybe will stop into the. Uh, gift shop that's attached, you know, where you pick up some souvenir or postcard or something. And so, you know, the the little little gift shop that Jane is is um, is kind of managing is what's left of Earth's civilization, what's left of our culture, uh, our technology mostly reduced to like keychains and posters. So, in the course of the story, um, Jane uh, is sort of wrestling with the decision of she she's supposed to go to community college in Jupiter uh in the fall, but she she's
1: 3020.
2: Of 3020, yes. This story is set a thousand years in the future. And uh she a couple of uh travelers crash land, you know, right next to her gift shop. And it sort of gives her opportunity to explore parts of her, you know, world that she hasn't looked at in a while. So
1: and there's there's two big fragments that are one is the gift shop announcement, which is so funny. It tells you what you can buy there, and it isn't. It's not tremendously. Um, it's kitschy stuff. I mean, you'd think you know at the end of a great civilization or civilizations that we'd have, but it's history. The poster and it's um, it's wonderfully entertaining. Uh, uh, Charlie had had this um, in a in a collection, and then we reworked it to put it back into this and. One of the things that repeats a lot in the story is the sense of home. What is home? Where is home? Um, And I I just have to read this, Charlie, because at the end of the gift shop shop section, after Charlie has made you laugh for a few pages talking about what you can get in this gift store, maybe you want to be able to say, I went home, even if it isn't home, was never your home. Is not anyone's home anymore. Maybe you just want to say, I touched the ground there, breathe the air, looked at the moon the way people must have done a thousand years ago. So you can say to your friends, if only for a moment or two, I was a human on earth, even if all I did was shop there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that you do really well, Charlie, that as an editor again, I enjoy so much. And Jess, you do too, these moments where um, you you do these tonal shifts, You're, you're funny, you're clever, you're creating worlds that are feeling Uh, masterfully built and then there's this shift where you feel this human longing um it's it's tremendous I mean it's what literature does you both do it I mean not that you need any affirmation from me but (laughs) you both do it tremendously well um uh and Jess if, if you don't mind I have to read this one uh tiny bit it's where your character uh Jay remembers coming out um coming out to, to his, his parents. Um, I, I couldn't read dad's face at all. He just took another drag of his cigarette and turned back to the TV. Finally, he said, you haven't done anything about it, right? He seemed to think that as long as I hadn't say waxed my chest or blown anybody, it wouldn't be official and I could still change my mind. Mom came back into the room. She had composed herself, put on makeup, My mother had beautiful porcelain skin, even as a lifetime smoker, but she was always insecure about her fair coloring. It's good that you got your father's skin and not this wet paste, she'd always say. Freshly blushed, she sat down next to me on the loveseat and took my hand. She apologized and said she hadn't cried because I was gay. She'd cried at the sudden realization that since her only child was gay, she would never be a grandma. Mom, I said gay people can have kids. Okay, she said, and then she burst into tears again. I'm sorry. That doesn't make me feel any better. 5 years later, she died. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> I I you know, again, I I have many of my writing students have joined us tonight. Um it is hard to do what what you both do in the course of these stories. Never mind um these recent marvelous books of yours, The Cold Millions and uh, Interior Chinatown, which I just happen to have nearby and you two clearly planted in the back, each other's books, which is a mark of your great generosity to one another. But, you know, starting with some of the things that you both, I think are, are that drives your work and that you're interested in, is this balance of, um, you know, I, I wrote in some of your, your copy, the sweet and the searing, the hilarious and the heartbreaking, Ben Fountain um, wrote about Jess as the zero. Um, uh, it's a testament to this author's genius that I could not stop laughing, even even as he drives home some necessary truths. And um, uh, a, a blurb about you, Charlie, from your collection of short stories. Use work begs comparisons to Vonnegut and Douglas Adams, but he's funnier than both. <laughs> so that profundity, the ability to entertain us while you're also expanding us as good literature does, expanding our empathy, expanding our sense of connectedness, ex- connected to each other through longing, through, through, through loss. Um, maybe you both could talk about how you, you managed to do that and, and why it's important to you uh charlie you want to go first
2: uh sure um yeah that i love that blur but it uh makes me cringe probably you know, <laughs> i <I'm obviously>. sorry <laughs> no 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 not, it's not you it's i mean how could it yeah. it's it's crazy but um uh i i, I think i'm not uh if I try to be funny, it never works. It's my, you know, kids are a tough room. And generally I, like, if you asked, you know, I was going to say a hundred of my friends, I don't have a hundred friends. If you ask 20 of my friends, let's say, uh, you know, am I one of the funnier people in, you know, that they, they would, you know, 19 would say, no, you know, it's not like a uh, funny th- is not like in the top five things that I'm like trying to be. <laughs> It it's it just so happens that things, you know, I, I usually bore myself when I'm writing and, <laughs> and it's only when I'm starting to get into some place that's a little less comfortable or a little more, um, I don't want to say honest because hopefully I'm trying for that all of the time, but um, there's just something about maybe taking the foot off the gas a little bit, you know, or, or something about, um taking myself a little less seriously that then I, I loosen up or something and that's when the writing happens and that's kind of what ends up getting it's like surviving to the point where I, i'll actually try to finish it um mm-hmm. that, that's my best guess at why you know for better or worse i don't tend to write super serious things i mean i wish i could i i always intend to i start out intending to write something very weighty and important, and it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> that way often.
1: I, I think it has a lot of gravitas, and I think the humor in, in your work and in Justice too um, expands that that the truths that you're trying to drive home. And in the story you wrote for us about how if we don't prize this earth, it's going to be it's going to be a place that we look back and wonder on, and just kitschy stuff in a in a gift shop. I mean, you capture that longing and that it's a love letter to our lives now, even as complicated as our lives are right now. I mean, I I was thinking, like, it's extraordinary. There you are in Los Angeles. There's Jess in Spokane. I, I have a, a student of mine, Jemima, in Singapore watching, uh, you know, friends in New York. Um, it, again, like, Charlie, if you were writing this, that we're moving through time and space together, you would bring that home. But, you know, I I imagine as someone wrote about your work, uh, you say that there's a feeling that there's always something just a little bit wrong (laughs) in the story. And that's that's important to it's an important thing to alert us to particularly in your story for Scrib, because there is a whole lot wrong (laughs) in terms of what happened to this planet we're struggling so hard I hope we're struggling so hard to save how about you Jess I I know a little bit more about um we've worked together a bit more I know a little bit more about your relationship to humor so you yeah
0: it's interesting it's interesting because I do I find Charlie's work so funny but uh, but I think it, it almost immediately transcends the humor, which is what I appreciate. Um, uh, you know, even, even that story with, you know, America, the ride, um, you know, there, there are just these moments that, that, that in which the humor is still there, but, but it leads to something deeper. And I've found in my own work that I do tend to, go toward funny things but um, sometimes they work as a trap door they release all the tension in the story and I want to keep the trap door from springing I want you know, the mother to say something funny like that, but to not break the tension of that moment. Um, When I was a kid, and I think I come by it really naturally from my parents. My dad had a wicked sense of humor. I remember riding a, all I wanted to do was ride a, a roller coaster and we were poor and I never had been to a, to a, uh, an amusement park and we finally got to go on a roller coaster. And I had seen on the Brady Bunch that you put your arms in the air on the roller coaster. So um, <laughs> they put me in and they lowered the bar and I sat next to my sister and it took off and I slammed my face against oh the bar. Blood started spraying everywhere and they stopped the roller coaster after four feet and got me off and sent me back to my parents. And without a beat, my dad said, how was it? Um, and, <laughs> And I just thought, at that, even at that moment, even as an eight-year-old, I thought, that is genius. That is, there's something on the borderline of cruel and funny and heartbreaking and something about the haplessness of human nature that I nice. that I still long to try to create on the page and have that haplessness heard a little. And that, and I still love those intersections. I love when yeah. humor intersects with anything. And in my work, um, in my books... If, I, I tend to to find places for port to intersect that hopefully move me, and then you know we'll move the reader too. But I, I've I've had to abandon so many stories that were nothing but funny, nothing but jokes, nothing but you know um, a and funny you make line. laugh
1: sometimes when you're working.
0: I make myself laugh all the time. It's probably my biggest problem. The uh, <laughs> I, it's a it's a laugh riot here at Walter Co headquarters. <laughs> so. <laughs> but sometimes well, it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, cohere into something more, and I love, I love, and I love those writers. Charlie was compared to favorably. I would love to just even be told I was taller than a, <laughs> than another writer like that, but um, uh, because because it does cohere, because it, you know, through philosophy, through character, through all these things, it just means more than than the pieces themselves, and that's what I that's what I think I'm looking to both create and transcend when I write something funny.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, you mentioned your dad, and I have to to talk to you guys about, you know, in in this story, The Only Living Girl on Earth, and obviously your story, Jess, there's a lot about fathers, parents, there's Jane and her mother, her mother's up, uh, you know, they're having these hilarious conversations, uh, uh, you know, these tug of wars, but also... Charlie, which happens in um, a lot of your what what happens in your work is there's a missing father. Um, how to live in a science fictional universe? Of course, we're we're searching for a father, right? The, in the story for Scribd, um, there's a missing father. Um, Jess, you you write about um, a father there, and and and, and I know that uh, you have other an extraordinary. Um, met, you know, we live in water, the title story, holy crap, right? <laughs> um So I, 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 and I know now you're home with the COVID and you got the kids around, parenting, parents, missing, missing parents. You, you both want to, uh, Charlie, maybe we'll start with you because it recurs a lot in your work. Um You, you want to talk about why and how that might recur and what, what that, why that might be so?
2: Um, I could, but then <laughs> this would turn into a therapy session. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I want to do, the the thing that, you know, in just as, uh, in Town & Country is so uh, beautiful is, is the thing that I'm often, you know, that's the, whatever's got me interested in, in the story is this wavelength, you know, or, or this kind of ongoing conversation between a parent and child that you feel like you're dropping into the middle of it. I think that's something that Jess does so beautifully in, the, in this story. It's like you're in it and you you already, you get the feeling of all the history between them and the pain and the, and the love at the same time. Um, I mean, Jess's story is so, you know, to go back to the previous question just for a second, it's so funny that it wasn't only until I read it, you know, again, that I realized how sad actually the story is if I were, if I step back and think about what's happening, you know, I was like, oh, this is not, you know, this is not a light story. It's just being masked. I mean, you, success, you successfully pull it off in that it's, you sort of trick me into like laughing my way through this story about like, <laughs> you know, about dementia and about this incredibly difficult decision, um, and um, you know, I, I think. I'm looking for I guess that sort of intimacy uh where there's a kind of shorthand or everything that you say, you know, and speaking I guess for from my own experience not to project it too much, but I just love the idea that, you know, every conversation kind of is um like a you know, layer cake of of past conversations and
1: yeah. You do that so well. Your dialogue, both of you, your dialogue makes my hair curl. It's just so good. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Hollywood because I, I suspect that that's part of why both of you were able to have do and have done work in that form. But Jess, what about what about what Charlie's saying? I mean, yeah.
0: Um, I mean, you I, know, it,
1: yeah. It, go ahead, love, go ahead.
0: It's interesting how how these people we know the best that we sprang from are so inscrutable in some ways. Yeah, and amazing. you know, my my mother died when I was fairly young, and so I felt like I've spent forever looking for her. And you know, the father in yes. um, in interior Chinatown is you know there's an inscrutability to these characters, oh. these figures that that makes them kind of the ultimate mystery in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and
1: I will say, just I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah talk about he um, Charlie talks about uh, the the seafood the father old Asian man in China,
0: yeah, right.
1: China, will always be your father but somehow was no longer your dad because he gets lost in the trope and the cliche right. the stereotype it's like it's it's it's, it's so With, funny and so upsetting at the same time not funny but I don't know the, the satire breaks yeah, your you, heart you know
0: and, and using that form to you know, to open up that idea that there are all sorts of tropes we get cast into. And that, that's why that, you know, it's such a, such a brilliant um, metaphor for, for the way we all get cast in roles, you know, as father, as son, as oldest son, as middle child, as youngest, you know, we fall into these roles. And, um, and I think that it's endlessly interesting, you know, uh, for me to dig into that. And I, Um, there are a lot of things I I don't have in common with Jay, but I, I do have a father who has dementia. And so, you know, dealing with that, the, the kind of sweetness of it, the heartbreak of it, uh, and it goes to the really elemental question. Who are we? What are we, when our memories start fading, when we start losing, um, that sense of ourselves. And, um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think to write about our parents is a way to write about some part of ourselves uh, and it, most of us don't, aren't curious enough about our parents until it's too late for them to really give us any information of, of value, you know?
1: Yes, wow. um, Ouch, yeah.
0: yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I, I find both my parents showing up in my work not even in characters you would recognize but in d in beautiful ruins i see my mom and then um you know a number of characters i see my dad and you know in the cold millions i see um you know i i, I think our pasts are are a nice way uh to try to figure out human nature so. yeah.
1: Well, both you're both parents as well and and Charlie and um, the only living girl on earth in America, the ride it, it's a ride where they're sort of simulating your life experience and you' you're, you're living it I mean insofar as what's real, what's not real is hard to say. but there's a point where the kids get out of their one car into another and they're watching their kids go off and maybe now during the pandemic you might think that's not such a bad thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might need a little space but there's also the the inscrutability i would imagine that i don't have children but that you feel about your own kids like who the hell are these <laughs> or or trying to connect with them um, or, or,
0: or that they'll look at us the way we look at our parents and not know us someday that's heartbreaking to me i i do my best to try to like you know, give them the information that I would have wanted about my parents, and they—they they don't seem to want it. Strange.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, you know, here we are, three are, you know, in our separate parts of of the country, uh, trying so hard to to connect with all of our might and, and hoping that it's—it's—it's it's, it's just being human is damn hard. We don't—we don't talk about that enough, although I guess we do lately. Um, so, um, the other thing that you do, both of you extraordinarily well, um, is you, you both play with form and structure. You're extraordinary engineers, both of you. Um, uh, Charlie, you, you, you do these sci-fi reinvention, speculative fiction, um, playing linear, non-linear. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. Jess and Cold Millions, um. And the Cold Millions, you're we're time traveling back, but in within that, it's it's non-linear. It's 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 you're moving around beautiful ruins, 1967 to the present back. Um, when you guys are, you know, when you wrote the Only Living Girl on Earth, and it's told in fragments um, that come together, I think really smartly in chess. When you were working on the Cold Millions, or even on when you're making a decision about a story like Town and Country. How does the the structure or the form complement subject to you guys? Or are, are you thinking about that since you're both unusually innovative with this and capable? Um, are you thinking about that right away? When does when does the organization of the story occur to you, uh, Charlie? You can you can go because you are mind blowing in this capacity.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I have to say too about the Cold Millions. I. I sometimes with like multiple POV stories um, I, you know, every time i turn the page and see it's a new chapter, I'm a little bit bummed because I'm like, ah, I got to get the momentum back up again. And uh, one thing that's really, you know, I, you know, should study, I guess, or just try to maybe imitate <laughs> or steal from, from Jess is just how do you do it so that it feels additive? Like you're excited about, Oh, now I'm dropping into this. Right. I think the, 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 flap copy describes it as kaleidoscope kaleidoscopic um i think it's a good way of looking at it because in the aggregate it starts to really be additive i've never tried really anything like that you know in terms of multiple points of view um for the most part um i'm in one point of view often in first person this last book uh interior chinatown was in second person but mm-hmm. uh but as you're saying amy i a lot of times it's it's about on a more macro scale, you know, trying to do something with the shape of it or with um, the, yeah, I guess the shape of it really, you know, how do you, uh, for whatever reason, that's often um, it's like a necessary step for me to start really getting interested is like, how is the form, how are the form and the substance talking to each other? Uh, and if they're not, I just think, well, I don't maybe it comes also, you know, to be honest, a little bit of an anxiety of is my substance good enough? you know, like I, I have to I want to weave something else in there because what I feel like I'm interested in, and if if I have any kind of insight, it's often like to have a different take on something that is otherwise probably, you know, maybe a familiar story or you could say a fairly universal or straightforward story but presented in a different sort of um, framework that, that to me uh, unlocks something else about it. So I think that's what I'm interested in.
1: And, right, because Interior Chinatown, and again, we're gonna get to Hollywood because we can't, we can't not, you know, to- told in a script or teleplay form. It's, it's really, really um, innovative, interesting, you know, and it really does drive the ideas. I think the ideas you're trying to convey home and Jess, uh, man, you know, uh, t- yeah. you know, and, and I got to hold it up because talk about form, also multiple points of view, m- yeah. more time travel. I mean, in the cold millions, you're it's an historical novel. We're going back. Um, and then this, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how it doesn't kill you sometimes, <laughs> all the architecture, you know, yeah.
0: It, um, I, I was so um, really glad to hear Charlie's the word shape, because that's a word I often use more for myself than um, the reader, honestly, but what I it's also what I'm thinking about and even with multiple points of view and traveling in time. Um, there's still a kind of visual image I get from the book. With the cold millions, the whole time I had this picture of a river, and the river is also the central metaphor. And these other voices coming in, I saw as tributaries or waterfalls or undercurrents coming into this main third-person channel, these little first-person tributaries coming in. And it's a really helpful way for me to give a sort of meaning to the – the surface of the thing that I'm doing while I'm trying to have what's underneath, you know, have the characters and everything else. I often will have great ideas for a book, but no shape for it. And so I'll write characters and scenes and throw them in a drawer. And that happened with the cold millions. I knew I wanted to write a book about this period in this time, but for the life of me, I couldn't quite see it. And um, it doesn't always happen, but if, if the shape, adds to the resonance of the work and um, uh, I mean I it's it's uh, in some ways coincidental that we are that we have each other's books here but I would I would teach a class about how using this form in interior Chinatown makes you um, not just question Hollywood and how um, you know uh, uh, Asian characters are have been treated in this you know racist throwaway way but the way um, culture reflects that the way we all live a sort of TV show, um, how, how influenced we are by that and how, um, again, how we cast ourselves in our lives. And so I think in the, in the best case, the shape enhances what's underneath it. And it doesn't always do that, but when it does, um, then it's kind of thrilling. And I, I, I am a, really chronic outliner but i don't start outlining until i'm all done with the book and then i draw a picture of what the hell i've done um, and try to you know patch all the edges and make the airplane fly but it's one of the last things i do is is write a goofy outline of what it is that you know of why beautiful ruins has any sort of symmetry at all um, and then try to make that come true
1: well, guys, we got to talk about Hollywood because, as many of the people who've signed up know, um, uh, Charlie wrote wrote for The West World, um, uh, Legion, uh, uh, and a few other another another um, show as well. It is escaping me at the moment, but Charlie will tell us. Um, uh, and then Jess, the Beautiful Ruins, is is uh, satirizes Hollywood so well, and you also, Jess, have written. Uh, for Hollywood-written screenplays, among other things, TV, TV, TV treatments, and more. Um, I found this great. I was joking around with myself and said, "I got to find a great Hollywood quote." Um, and so uh, there's a great Marilyn Monroe quote: "Hollywood is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul." <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I really, I really had to include that because it, it was so delightful. Every country gets the circus it deserves. Spain gets bullfights, Italy get the church, America, Hollywood, Erica, Jong. So what, I mean, you know, Charlie, let's start with you since you were, you know, I approach all these writers to write prose and they're like, sorry, I'm in the, the writing room for X show and X show. Um, tell me how it works with your prose writing. And and I know, I know Jess uh, and I have talked about that before, but I haven't had a chance to talk to you about that.
2: Yeah, um, and I'm so curious to hear Uh, if there's anything in the works and maybe you're not allowed to talk about with town and country because I I, there's so many things about this that just for me I want to know more about this world right I really want it's such a teaser I mean it's a perfect story I think it ends perfectly I if you said of course I wouldn't write another word of this because it, it is what it is then Fair, but like I'm also like <laughs> i i wouldn't mind watching six seasons of it either um, or, you know, yeah, you know, whatever you're willing to to do um yeah i i uh I don't know how you know i i don't know um I don't know if I have enough distance yet to know how much it's uh going to in the long run um w- which one's influencing the other one more you know. It's, I, I was a lawyer until about six years ago. So for you know, my first three books, I was working as a lawyer as my sort of full-time day job. And then I quit to work in TV. And so most of the time writing Interior Chinatown, I was working in a TV writer's room and trying to balance those two. And, and balance, it didn't really work that well, actually. I, I thought I would have some like energy left over at the end of the day, but for the most part, I I just sort of didn't. Um, So I would have to really focus on the times when I was in between writers rooms and just like put my head in the book. Um, And so I did that for a couple of years. Um, But what I, you know, what I did find is that alternating between the two, there was, it feels like there's some, I think, constructive influence Maybe not all constructive. I mean, I think uh, screenwriting really has, or TV writing has forced me to um, be a little bit more ruthless with my stuff. And I think that's probably a good thing um, for me anyway. Um, a little less precious. Uh, it, 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 to me, really, they ask for clarity. You know, I think ambiguity is a harder thing to pull off on the screen. Right. Uh, I think people can do it. I'm not good enough yet. I haven't been doing this very long. Um, but I, I don't think that's a terrible thing, you know, to at least be thinking about anyway for, for my prose fiction, I guess. So those are a couple you know, things that I feel like has gone that way as for whether or not I've been able to bring anything the other way, fiction to TV. I I don't know. I mean, I'm working on a lot of projects, but None of them have been made yet, so I don't know if I actually can do this. You know, like I've worked in other people's rooms, you know, and so I, you know, I'm often the the novelist in the room, uh, I guess, uh, for better or worse. And sometimes they look at me like, "Okay, what does the novelist have to say?" And sometimes they're like, "Oh, that's interesting. Uh, maybe we'll try that." And other times they're like, "That, that would never work." So, yeah.
1: And how about you, Jess?
2: um
0: ah, it's so interesting it's interesting that we both have sort of um uh um unusual paths to being fiction writers you know, I think the usual path is to get an MFA and um you know and then publish a story in the New Yorker and you know I and I um came through journalism and was a ghost writer and have I always joke that I took the service entrance into into literary fiction um but i but i looking back at one point i realized that the unusual path i had taken had been beneficial in so many ways and that economy you're talking about, the the clarity you're talking about, I, I feel like I got both of those from screenwriting and from journalism, um, a, and, a, and a sense of structure, um, you know that you can then, you know, veer away from. I think you can get as many bad habits as you can attributes from those two things, and so I was always wary of not, you know, picking up, um, you know, of of allowing some ambiguity or ambivalence back into my writing. Um, I also uh, think of myself as a bit of a Hollywood agnostic because I cash the checks, but I have no proof that it really exists. Um, and um, and so, uh, which I think serves me well too. I sort of love it that way. But a, a lot of my cynicism about the place went into Beautiful Ruins, but I always find myself drawn back. The chance to write uh, an amazing film, have something, you know, have a great TV show, um, it really is it's the cultural centerpiece right now, and I, and I think you know writers should try to work there. There's uh, I have an uncle who is a Pentecostal Pente, Pentecostal minister who always says you should live in the world but not of it, and I always think of that every time I get off a plane in Los Angeles that I can live in Hollywood but I'm not ever going to live of it.
1: Yeah, it, it's um, there's a. The um Hollywood is an idea it's not a real place says RuPaul and I I I kept finding all these great quotes and Jess yeah. and I were talking like Hollywood's a cesspool but it's the only cesspool that ever swim in like I have the you know yeah. like putting on my noir voice but um yeah. well it strikes me that you both manage it extraordinarily well and um and uh, it it is going through an interesting uh change right now um, uh, because of all the things that are happening in our culture and the things that uh, we have been forced to reckon with, and that's a that's that's a good thing. Um, I, I I think guys, we have to come around to the Q and A part sure. of this, um, If that's okay, we're about at that time. Um, so there is a, let's see, there's a question um, for uh, both of you. When and where do you do your best writing? Does it come all at once or does it come in spurts? Uh, Charlie? It
2: it comes rarely. I mean, I'm, you know, not someone who's, like, productive on any kind of regular schedule. Uh, I I try every day to write, but uh, I find myself stuck for really long stretches. And then I have little breakthroughs where I get a lot of the, I guess, productivity uh in in a really short amount of time weirdly it's often in like transitory moments you know like like i'll just be waiting somewhere in my car for 10 minutes and then of course that's when the idea comes or (laughs) the uh, the shower often helpful but you know i can only take showers for so long so i (laughs) struggle with that what about you jess um,
0: also your car. No, um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I, um, uh, I almost have to break into two periods because I had a job most of my life. And so then I was also, I carried a journal and I, you know, was always looking for scraps of time, but I I wrote every Sunday back when I had a five day week job, since I didn't go to church, I thought my church would be writing. And then once I became a full-time writer, I'm one of those up at five in the morning and I just come right out here to this swanky cool office. And, um, and I, what's really helped me, think about productivity in a different way as having musician friends they never say they're going to work they always say they're going to play Um, and sometimes they'll just play covers and riffs and mess around and so I kind of kid myself that I'm just messing around most days and that turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy (laughs) Um, I mess around on sentences that don't go anywhere and stories that turn out to be nothing but um, it is that old that old saw that if you're in the chair, something often happens. So I'm a seven day a week. Uh, I took Christmas off. Well, I did write this Christmas. I took Christmas off a year ago. <laughs> this, this Christmas, it was the middle of the pandemic, and I, I had to come to work. But I pretty much write every day. It's my hobby, but I do it the way a musician picks up a guitar. I strum and mess around, and if nothing comes, at least I had a good day playing the guitar.
1: And uh, people are asking if you're writing patterns or habits. And I, I, I remember just that you were in conversation with Richard Russo not so long ago, and you guys were talking about this. Have your habits or patterns of work changed at all during COVID? Um, how about you, Charlie?
2: Um, a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm finding my you know butt in the chair more hours. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have to drive to LA as often, and I. have less of the place in a lot of good ways. I think uh, more quiet in my head. And um, and then at the same time, you know, kind of. I think the rhythm of uh, everyone being home has been a little bit of a, as, as fun as it is, it's also somewhat distracting. So it, sometimes like how do I actually focus so that I am, I love the playing on a, an instrument or riffing on a guitar. I think that's just such a great way to think about it, Jess. And so I will extend that to my internet surfing from now on. (laughs) um, But yeah, I I find myself, you know, maybe plucking the strings and then just kind of walking out just to mess around with my kids for 10 minutes. And am I really doing anything? I don't know. But I think you, I think you are though. I mean, that
0: that's my defense that I have uh, I, I started out the pandemic like a ball of fire. I was working so well. And then, it kind of softened up a little bit. And there was, I got one of those notifications on my phone that said I, my average time on my phone had been like six hours and 45 minutes during, and it, cause I was just checking 538.com. And then I would, <laughs> right, right. then I would play poker on my phone and then I would check CNN. <laughs> and it was, I was realizing like, I spent, I spent like a fourth of every day on my stupid cell phone. So I did have to discipline myself. I took the poker thing off. I've been turning my phone off during the day. Um, uh, sometimes even the guitar w- doesn't get picked up you know sometimes you're uh, <laughs> um, you're too lazy to even strum the guitar and that's when um, when I know I have to be a little more self-disciplined uh, so I did go through that stretch earlier where I had about you know the election especially there was the culmination of a pandemic and the election and that orange monster um, still in the White House was just and and then they overthrew the country one day so it was a little hard to concentrate for a while
1: um, guys, they're both the question for both of you again, is how about writing short versus writing long? Um, you w- do you go back and forth? Do you have preferences, which is easier? Is there no such thing?
0: Uh, I'll go first. I think I'm, I am a more natural novelist, but I have had about 15 or 20 years of trying to teach myself the short story and then really fell in love with them. And now, um, I love what Tobias Wolfe says that he writes short stories because you can at least, at least approach perfection. Um, And the truth of that is that every novel is a big unwieldy mess that the author I think knows is barely held together with Scotch tape and paper clips. And with a short story, every once in a while you'll write some little gem and you'll think "Um, that kind of stands on its own and you don't have to pad it or explain it or have context or, Round things out, it just kind of is. And when you read a great Alice Monroe short story or um, you read a great Chekhov story, you just say, Oh, this is approaching perfection, you know, in a way that feels to me uh, aspirational, I guess. Um, but that said, I think I'm a more natural novelist.
1: Um, how about you, Charlie?
2: Um, well, I don't think I could do any better than Jess just did, so I, I won't parrot what he said. I am. I, I would take issue with just characterization of being a natural novel. I mean, you obviously you're unusually gifted, but this short story is, uh, Town and Country is just fantastic. It's also a, a hard length for something to be really that long. You know, I mean, right. Amy knows, I mean, we went round and round on The Only Living Girl because it's really four pieces that needed to be kind of woven together. And thanks to Amy's, patience and guidance I, I think it came together I, I hope so but but this just feels like this came out like you excavated not a gem but like a <laughs> like a, a sizable rock of something and yet not a novel you know it feels like a I don't know this is a weird but amazing length of something just to exist that's kind of the it's one of the cool things
0: about Scribd is that longer story They um you know, a, a lot of magazines were taking seven, eight, ten thousand word stories. You know, twenty years ago, now they really—if they publish a story, you know—it um, really is shorter. So it is kind of amazing that this online space and um, and 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 it, the the rock that you're talking about also had some great editing by Amy. So thank you. Oh. Um, um, but but yeah i think i think it's a really cool length to work in and it pushes you as a writer and allows for a depth that you don't sometimes get in those you know 2500 word short stories um, but isn't weighed down by all the all the mechanisms of a novel yeah.
1: and for me as a lover of the short story and i and as an editor of one um, over these many years when I was editing short fiction at Playboy, we we had more room. And then increasingly, just in my time there, they were getting shorter and shorter. And then I moved to Esquire, and length was always an issue. So it was a great pleasure as an editor, uh, and it allowed me to work with both of you at this length, to have a story that could be over 4,000, 5,000, all the way up to 30,000. And somebody asked, how did you come to collaborate with Scribd? And I imagine you both would say it's a combination of knowing me, but also having stories to offer at this length. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the um, Amy first and then and then, yeah, the the challenge of being able to to write something of that length and find a place for it, because there just aren't that many.
1: Yeah, and Scribd script is very devoted to this length and to promoting it. It's it's really really pleasurable, you know, for for readers who want to yeah. read at different kinds of lengths and find different things on that platform.
0: Yeah, well, and to work with a great editor too, because you know, you yeah, often with short stories, you, they just sort of take them, you know, and it's nice to to have you work the stories. The way you do.
1: Well, for me, it's such a pleasure, as I've said, guys, and I ain't kidding. No BS, no BS, Amy Lloyd. Um, Guys, I have more questions, and we're, we're tick-tocking here. Um, Jess, this is for you. You did such a wonderful, hilarious job capt- capturing the 2008-2009 recession with Financial Lives of the Poets. Are you thinking of writing something to capture the pandemic or Trump era?
0: Ooh, um, you know, this story in um, Town & Country is a little bit of a Trump story, honestly. It's about um, sort of that fissure between, um, generations that Trump also represented, uh, and, and cultures. And so, um, I, I, I am a journalist at heart. I can't avoid the present moment. Even when I write a novel set in 1909, it's because I want to write about income inequality now. So, um, I am drawn. So I, I think I will, I don't know that I'll write anything as antic and, uh, farcical as *Financial Lives of the Poets*, but um, it was certainly fun to do that.
1: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's something, um, you know, Jess, that that I I just have to I have to share. Um, let's see if I can find it in my copious notes here. Um, the the um, how you bring to life Elizabeth Gurley Flynn um and and some of the things that you you um you pull from her um and I'm sorry I'm jumping around a little here but I was just looking at my notes and just thinking about um when uh you're talking about something as complicated as the the labor movement um and you can yeah you, know, you are combining historical figures with real life figures, which is a hard thing to do, right, Charlie? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Charlie, you wrote a whole novel from Charles Yu's point of view, and that ain't easy either. <laughs> that takes chutzpah. But I've got to celebrate this woman a little bit um, when before we leave each other tonight because um, it says something, I think, about the writing process as well, not just surviving in general, that too. Um, Rye says to her, "Um, how do you do it? I asked her, how do you keep getting up every day and fighting when winning seems impossible? She thought about it. And then she said, men sometimes say to me, you might win the battle, girly, but you'll never win the war. But no one wins the war, Ryan, not really. I mean, we're all gonna die, right? But to win a battle now and then, what more could you want? Oh man, Jess, I mean, did she actually say that? And also, I think it speaks to kind of both of the way that you two view the world a little bit, Uh, you know, whether you're writing life or your characters in your book. I mean, Jess, you also talk about Tolstoy uh, in, in, uh, in the cold millions and uh, Joshua first, who is a fine writer himself says that, you know, you've made a career of the, of the small, not the big character, but you know, in, in case of Rye, the small character. So I just think you know, that's a fascinating thing that you both share.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I think uh, no, she did not say that. I, oh, I no. <laughs> much of this novel was was written in conversation with in my head with my children about how to keep, you know, marching for science and for decency and facts and, um, and that I found myself at the end of the novel and I wanted to ask Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, this person who threw her life into activism and into, you know, uh, into the search for justice and equality. How do you keep getting up in the morning, you know? And I think it's something a lot of us probably asked over the last four years. And so those re- the, you find yourself in those really personal moments writing sometimes. And I think it's probably a good sign that you go with them, you know, that you, that you ask those questions and then uh, hopefully have a character as uh, committed and uh, um, agile as uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn to answer them.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you both. I mean, you've got Jane and *The Only Living Girl* um, on Earth, uh, Charlie, and she's a she's. I mean, she. I mean, uh, Gurley Flynn talks about the necessity the necessity of liberating the vagina. Now, Jane <laughs> never says anything quite that bold, but she's pretty plucky alone on that on the in the gift shop by herself. Um, and I wonder too, guys, about writing. Um, outside your gender, outside your experience. Um, how how comfortable do you, do either of you feel doing that? How about you, Charlie?
2: Not very. I'll, I'll be yeah. honest, I haven't done it a lot. And um, I think this, you know, good experience has, um, you know, maybe will uh, encourage me to try to go out of my uh, comfort zone a little more, uh, but it, it might just be an aberration i not just called back her. in myself. shell
1: wonderful okay and and you know fully dimensional you know the, even just the the, the the tug of war between her and her mother that's also so quite so loving mm-hmm. um, um guys they're uh they're also asking about books that changed your view of writing and i know we got to do this fairly quickly because we have about five minutes left Oh, in fact, this will be the last question, alas.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Um, boy, there's so many books there. I stumble across them all the time. But I think the one, when I, when I close my eyes and look back there, uh, I remember reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And in my mind, that's like the scene in Wizard of Oz where it's black and white and it becomes color. Um, in that moment, I just thought, all these things you can do with fiction with voice with um it it felt it it felt as if the world opened up for me as a writer i was 19 or 20 and i knew i wanted to be a novelist but i thought that meant telling a story from a to z um and and all of a sudden that book uh, and its beautiful structure and and the revelation of the hundred years coming you know, forward the title at the end, the amazing first sentence, which is a novel unto itself. It all just felt to me like this is what, you know, this is something more than I uh, even imagined.
1: And how about you, Charlie?
2: I guess if I had to pick one, I think Slaughterhouse-Five would probably be one where I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, similar to what Jess said. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was amazing.
1: Well guys, I think I have to begin to wind down here and I and I wanna thank you both. Thank you for working with me. Um, somebody asked um, if I'd mind speaking on the process of editing these two stories and I just have to say that as an editor, again, it, it is a great privilege and joy to work with you both. Um, the humility, your sense of craftsmanship, your reverence for the process. You, you, neither of you ever get mad at me, for which I think you. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. Yeah,
1: Yet, that's true. Yeah. That, that's true. Um, and let me um, encourage everybody to go to scrib.com to read Jess and Charlie's wonderful stories and, and um, lots of other amazing content. Um, and I want to um, thank everybody for coming and thank the, the Commonwealth Club for, for all they do. And Aileen Boyle, who's the great publicist that organized all of this. Aileen, thank you. You are the bomb, man. You right? She's just terrific. I and and guys, I guess I'll I'll see you soon.
2: All right. Thank you. So, Good to see you, Charlie. You too, Jess. Thanks, Amy. Take, Take care, everyone.
1: Hey guys, I'll see you soon. And thanks again, everybody.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.